Welcome to Comics on Trial, the show that pits two members of the Comics in Motion family in a geek battle. Each episode, one person will defend an unpopular opinion, and the other, representing the common consensus, will prosecute the case in the court of public opinion. I am your judge for today, Paul of Superheroes for Dummies. Today we are putting Star Wars The Phantom Menace in the dock. Now, the representative for the prosecution, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, uh, this is Scott Weatherly of 20th Century Geek. And I am here to, as you say, hopefully uh, give the Phantom Menace life, I think uh, is a fair, a fair sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and the defence, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, my name is uh, Mike Burton and I host Star Wars Comics and Canon on the Comics Emotion feed and also Genuine Chit Chat. Brilliant. And I guess I'm here to defend defend the Phantom Menace, I suppose. That's really... <laughs> <laughs> so, prosecution. Would you like to make your opening statement and lay it on him thick and fast? I would, I would. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, uh, your good honour, the judge, I would like to tell you a short story. I want to take you back in time. I want to take you back to uh, late 1998. A poster was released, an announcement that The Phantom Menace, a new Star Wars film was coming out. There was excitement in the air. Everybody was a buzz about it. It was a wonderful poster. The shadow of Darth Vader standing over a small Jake Lloyd. When May 1999 comes, I, a much younger me, a much probably thinner me, went to the cinema to watch this film. I sat down, my popcorn in hand, ready for the excitement. The music hits, the John Williams score, and what do I get told about? Do I get told about rebellion forces fighting across the galaxy? Do I get told about huge interstellar battles? Nope. I get told about taxation and trade agreements. I then sit through two hours of some of the most poorly acted, poorly written, poorly thought out prequel nonsense that can ever have been put to uh, celluloid. Uh, and today, Your Honor, I am going to prove why this film should be uh, put in the dock and kept there. Uh, and I intend to do this using things such as the terrible Jar Jar Binks. I'm going to bring up some wizard points uh, with regards to Jake Lloyd. <laughs> Um, I'm also going to bring up some tips, uh, some points around how this film is incredibly racist. So I hand to uh, my good colleague of the defence uh, and would like to hear what you have to say. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I am here uh, in front of everyone. I'm not going to brown nose everyone because I don't think I need to in this scenario like my uh, colleague has. The painting the picture is how about we paint a slightly different picture? Uh, decades, uh, 16 years of people waiting for a film that's going to be as good realistically as Empire Strikes Back. People waiting for a film that is going to hit all the right notes of this thing they've been waiting for. They've been brought up on their childhood and things, and it's been hyped to such a degree it could never conceivably hit the level that anyone would ever want it to be. That, mixed with, unfortunately, a certain Gungan character and maybe some unfavorable acting by children, that in itself is not enough for me to say this film should go in the dark ages. And in all honesty, I feel like the main problem with this film is that Jar Jar. And my point is going to be, if without him, no one would hate this film anywhere near as much, and it really doesn't get the credit it deserves. I'm going disagree with that, because I feel that Jar Jar is the, is the sort of the annoying Gungan cherry on the top uh, <laughs> of, of a film littered <clears throat> with um 
issues that I have. In fact, I'm going to, I'm going to make I'm going to make a start with the very very first thing in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with the crawl. Okay, so we all know you. I, we've talked about this before, Mike. You and I have had this debate and discussion uh, <laughs> several times now. But the, the, I do enjoy the original Star Wars trilogy. There are things to poke for that and also other stuff. But who can dispute that first film, A New Hope? It's a pulp sci-fi opera, you know, fantasy classic. It's fun. It's got adventure. It's all the things you need. It starts with a crawl. And the first paragraph of that crawl sets the scene. It says, It is a period of civil wars in the galaxy. A brave alliance of underground freedom fighters has challenged the tyranny and oppression of the awesome Galactic Empire. Now, to me, that's an intro. That's telling me we're about to get some really cool stuff, you know, fights, star battles, all kinds of things. What do we get for Phantom Menace? Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outlying star systems is in dispute. That's basically, we're getting the Brexit disputes in 1999 (laughs) in space. Can I just say that I will not allow a reintroduction of Brexit into my courtroom? (laughs) I'm sorry, Your Honour, I take that back. And we'll just say then, uh, I can't believe that after 16 years, as you say, that people have been waiting for something so exciting that they open up to to talk about trade disputes. I, I, it's it's baffling to me that that's where he thought he was going to go. So, defence, what what have you to say about this? What the opening bit that everyone looks for is this really what people want to see? The problem is with the opening crawl is that, as you say, it can be interpreted differently in different people. Whenever I see the crawl of Star Wars, I get excited for it. But if we look at all the Star Wars films, let's say almost let's look at all the prequels and all the sequels a lot of the crawls don't seem to have the same power that they did in the originals. And I feel like a lot of the time, it's almost like a blurb of a DVD. Like if you, if you read the back of a DVD and then that doesn't, and it sounds a bit rubbish. It doesn't mean the whole film is going to be. And I feel like in the crawl, yeah, it says about taxation and that is a bit bland and a bit dull in a lot of ways, but it's very much on the political side. And let's not forget that a new hope, one of the earlier scenes in it is a group of old white dudes in a room talking about how the Senate is now disbanded. Granted, it's not for as long in some ways as the Phantom Menace, but it, it's not like Star Wars, the original uh, trilogy was like nothing about it, politics, no mention of it in any way, shape or form. And then suddenly up comes Phantom Menace and punches you in the face of politics. It, it's not, it's not quite the same as that. And the film doesn't actually start with the Senate and people talking about taxes immediately. It's not far off. <laughs> Let's be fair. Yeah, but you get introduced to... The thing you have to think of is probably drawing the most parallels between A New Hope and Phantom Menace is that Phantom Menace, the start of it, immediately introduces you to Qui-Gon, who no one has ever seen before, ever. So it has to establish some degree of what Obi-Wan was like when he was younger and Qui-Gon. And the opening scene is just kind of a connection of that, really. I, I get what you're saying because actually one of the things I actually I'd actually go the other way that I don't think there's any any real characterization in the, in this first section at all. Mm. Um, I agree, like you said, because you know if you've seen you know this this film is a, is a hard one to settle, and I agree because for some it is the first time they're coming into Star Wars, like it is mm. literal episode one for them, um, and others are coming in with as you say sort of like decades of knowledge and. You know, pre knowledge of the films and other the, the legends books and all these other things, expanded canon. But this opening segment, one of the things I'll say is yes, you're trying to establish the characters. Um, and I, I, 
maybe I'm wrong. The, the characterization I get of Qui-Gon is basically that sort of like maverick rogue cop from 80s films <laughs> that just sort of does his own thing. So I'm not entirely sure why he has been sent to negotiate because he's clearly a bully. That's what I get from Qui-Gon. Throughout the whole film, he just tells people what to do. Um, is, is one of his first things he says with regards to the trade negotiations. It's in the first sort of like five minutes of the film. He says, these trade types are cowards. Negotiations won't last long. He's basically going to threaten them into giving up. Hmm. I mean, that's a very interesting point with Qui-Gon that I hadn't uh, sort of considered. I mean, over the film, I view him as more of, more so holier than thou in some ways. So I feel like he may not necessarily be a bully, but I would be inclined to agree he feels like he is a degree of a level above a lot of individuals. Mm. Uh, there's a certain arrogance about him. And yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where we've quite gone throughout the film. I feel like the prequels have a really hard job and Phantom Menace included in this is the problem is, is that obviously the original trilogy, it's, the main characters, this small, you know, small rebellion or like the only Jedi left, you know, that sort of thing. Basically just this against all odds, trying to beat this impossible to beat foe and then winning. And it's like an underdog story, which everyone can get behind. But the Jedi, there's barely any of them. So you barely hear anything about them. And then you spend to this film, which the Jedi are relatively everywhere. You know, I'd probably use the term ubiquitous. It's just, there's so many of them. So you can have so many and then this film does it quite well i think so many different personality types of someone from the same religion you know qui-gon yoda mace windu obi-wan they're all worshiping the same religion but it's all how they kind of interpret their own roles in the force and i think what this film does do is show that introduction quite well uh okay I, I, I what you're saying. No, no, I agree with some parts of what you're saying. There are elements of that that, that I fully endorse that it does, and I will, I will acknowledge that that this this carries with it a weight of having to introduce um, a system that we have seen past. You know, we we have seen the sort of like the aftermath of of a, of a system um, in the original trilogy, and this is trying to establish it as an existing, uh, not just political but religious system. So I understand it has a weight in order to do that. And that's a part of it. Like, that's one of the things I was anticipating. It's one of the things I was excited about for this film. Um, but one of the things I also think it fails at, because it's again, I think it's a problem of the storytelling of, of, of the whole saga, mm. is that in the first film, in the first trilogy, you get the aftermath of, of the Jedi Order. You know, you meet Obi-Wan, you meet um, uh, Yoda, and that's about it. Really. You know, you sort of like the remnants of, of in Darth Vader when you meet Anakin later and, and sort of Luke, that's it. Like it's all sort of like hearsay and old uh, traditions. Um, but in this, you meet a fully established um, Jedi order and how it sort of advises and influences. And it clearly does influence political th thinking, although it shouldn't. Um, but again, they carry like an arrogance. Like this is clearly the end of, of a, um, an empire, if you will. You say the arrogance that Qui-Gon carries, it runs throughout the Jedi Order. I agree. Like the, the moment when they sort of, they, you know, that Darth Maul sort of is, is um, comes into it and they're like, the Sith? Well, oh, no, it's not the Sith. We'd have known if the Sith were back. Uh, you know, so don't don't come questioning us. And, and then saying about sort of um, Jake Lloyd as, as Anakin, no, 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 no. He's not the prophecy. No, it's ridiculous. So there's just this, this, po-faced arrogance throughout all of it that just makes me think the Jedi aren't good or bad. They're just sort of 
this this sort of bloated, almost like a blo- a bloated sort of bureaucracy all of their own. Yes, this, this I is, agree. And that's again why I feel this film lets me down because I'm like, where's the kick-ass Jedi that I was expecting? Where are these sort of like, you know, I could watch what are they called? Those Buddhist temple monks that mm. do like crazy stuff and like balance on the edge of a sword or like you know smash their heads through bricks. I'm like, All right, where are those dudes? Where is these sort of like dedicated Jedi monks that I was promised? Not well, these people sat around basically sort of telling people what to do. That's a fair point. However, what I think you've inadvertently done is actually prove a point I was going to make, which is one of the aspects of the Jedi being quite unlikable and quite arrogant and very much like one of the big problems with it is the midichlorians and with Qui-Gon being like... We'll, you know, we'll get, get to them. Text. Yeah, <laughs> but that aspect of it is actually helping the fact that the point of the prequels is to show the Jedi have lost their way. People hear about the Jedi in the original trilogy. You hear they're these great warriors, they defenders of good. They're all these people that you want to strive to be. Like the angels to the devils, essentially, is meant to be the Jedi to the Sith. I, I the, agree with that. I agree with that. But the point you, of the prequels is to show that they're not. The point of the prequels is to show they used to be, like decades, maybe hundreds of years ago, but they're so wrapped up in the science and not the the true spirituality of the Force. They're like, if you don't have a certain amount of this in your blood, you can't be a Jedi. If you don't yeah. do this, you can't do that. And it's like, these guys sound like dicks. It's like, yeah, good. That That's the point. They're meant no, to come but, across that way. Okay, well, let's talk about this from a storytelling point of view, especially mm-hmm. considering one of the things I was going to pick up is <clears throat> we, when we get into Jake Lloyd and the silliness that ensues later with Jar Jar, <laughs> is the fact, I agree that this is the end of an era. Like This is clearly sort of the end of the Jedi Order. Like It's all inevitable. You know, This whole thing is supposed to be the, the thing that brings the balance. Actually, weirdly, is about the decimation of the Jedi Order, because the balance is about there not being light and dark, there's being grey. So, mm-hmm. it's an inevitability. However, you've had a trilogy of the aftermath with everyone going well, not everyone, actually, because people have forgotten about this ancient religion within 20 years. <laughs> but you have this this, this order <clears throat> that you are, you know, that clearly have influence across the galaxy and are well known. Um, and, you, and you're saying, oh, yeah, this, this religion is supposed to throw, sh- show their downfall. But you can't show their downfall if you haven't shown them as being at their peak. Do you know what I mean? This first film should show more, um, instead of Qui-Gon, although, like you say, being holier than thou, the only one who shows any common sense in this film, or even any real sense of morality, is Obi Wan Kenobi. I the, agree. The rest of them, and that's that's the the problem I have with the, the Jedi Order in this. Is like, and I agree with what you're saying, but that should come with, um, you know, more. It should really we should have the, the Jedi, the, the Phantom Menace, should have shown them as being. Um, incorruptible and should have shown them as being the best they could be so that when you do see their downfall it has an impact because as you say at this point i don't care because all come across and going yeah they're a disappointment i don't care bring on order 66 are you really just arguing for more prequel movies is this what you want no, I'm so I'm arguing for better storytelling. <laughs> I'm arguing for a better origin story because um, well, George Lucas chose this as a starting point, and he's the one that should have been telling this story. He had three films, whatever the hell he wanted to do, um, and he should have made a decision better than just showing an arrogant Sam Jackson sort of dismissing people left, right, and centre. <laughs> with the um, with the prequels, I will say as well is. The problem is, is that you have to somehow show the prequels are meant to be the life of Darth Vader. The problem is, if in the prequels they were as you would want them to be, uh, as this sort of amazing people, like as one would hope the Jedi are going to be, and then within a decade and a half, they went from being absolute top to literally terrible. 
then the complaint in this argument would be, how come they change so quickly? So in that regard, I, I see where you're coming from. I just think that although I will concede and say, well, I think we'll both agree that George Lucas, though, let's say these films are very flawed. As much as I enjoy them and I'm fighting for them, I think they are very flawed and they do not help matters very much, unfortunately. But another thing to consider when comparing The Phantom Menace with A New Hope as well, which is a point I just thought of, is well, the new, A New Hope was originally going to be a one-off, complete, finished story. Phantom Menace was always known to be the trilogy. So the problem is, is that comparing, once again, basically a third of a story to either a complete story that gets two sequels or a complete story with two other complete stories. And I think that's what this kind of, one of the flaws in The Phantom Menace is that it's it's so much on, this is a build-up, this is a trilogy, it it does kind of lose itself a little bit in, this is so much of a build-up, one would argue the payoff isn't enough. I personally argue the opposite, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, no, I, I agree with that. If, if you were to take this as a, as a single film, um, I will concede in my argument that it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's a part of a trilogy. Like it fits in the trilogy. It does. It tells a part of a story, but also as a single film, like this tells has a beginning, a middle, and end. Like you know, it tells the mm. journey of a small boy going on to become an apprentice. Like you know, that's that's the first step, and I accept mm. that that bit's fine. <laughs> It's this is wider storytelling that gets my gets my back up, and again, we are just talking about the fact that this story takes place over what a couple of a week, maybe I don't know, two weeks. I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I should have probably looked that, up, but I I think if we said two weeks is probably a, from the start of the film to the end. If we said yeah. that it's around two weeks, is probably a fair assumption. Yeah. So then there's a time jump from from this to the second film, and you say about oh the the Jedi falling could could have you know. Um, it takes too quick. There's a ten year bloody time jump between one and two, so you can cover things off. It just I don't know, they just feel like they're starting from a bad place anyway. Um, I will say just with the ten year thing very quick is that with uh, Phantom Menace the ten year jump there is still the decline just not as obvious because at this, in Phantom Menace I'm pretty certain they specifically say the Jedi are not warriors we're not soldiers we do not fight I'm I'm, I'm almost certain Mesa Windu or Yoda says that right towards the start when they're speaking about they can't get involved with the Naboo war against the Trade Federation because the Jedi are not soldiers How so, why the have they been sent as, so why have they been sent as enforced enforcing negotiators when well, clearly they, one of their taxes, tactics is to flash their lightsabers about well the point is they can't be intimidated that's the point if you go to someone who's creating a blockade on a planet they've clearly got some illegal things that they're doing and they're also not afraid to break the law and potentially kill some people if you send some people in there who basically can't really be killed then that takes away one of their own pieces to fight with and also with the whole 10-year thing is that an attack of the clones that film basically ends with the Jedi going, you know what, let's fight a war. When in Phantom Menace, they were saying, we can't possibly fight a war, that'd be ridiculous. So there is that 10-year gap showing the change in consensus of the Jedi mm. in a way as well. That'll accept, because there are things within, there are, there are actual themes, I think, although I think Attack of the Clones is actually a terrible film too, I think, <laughs> that has, I think that has stronger themes and... Um, implications for the, the the inevitable decline than this film and i think it's a stronger film before that mm. i um, would say my my opinion just quick off that menace and attack of the clones i think attack of the clones i may prefer it but i think it has some better ups but some worse downs than this film in I would, my I would, opinion yeah i'd agree with that as well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um okay i think we're going to go back and forth on this and i don't think we're, we're going to be so i'll leave the evidence for the judge on this one yes mm. i think because there are other things to discuss 
You have covered this one quite nicely. I will make my deliberations and I'm going to tease you. I'm going to let you know towards the end how okay. I feel. I'm not going to give you the football scores. I'm going to leave you. <laughs> <them. laughs> So, so what is your second case against the um okay well let's talk about you we've, you have mentioned it um because this sort of covers one of the things that is um the, the imbalance the tonal imbalance of this film but let us discuss uh jar jar binks <laughs> it's oh, inevitable God. it was going to happen um, i will well, allow a certain amount of impersonations here, but only a certain amount. <laughs> oh, I, don't I, I will save that. that. <laughs> I, will, I, will, yeah, I will save that for the most impactful moment. Um, well, let's start about that. There's something more than Jar Jar Binks that I said before. I, I feel that this film has worrying um, racial stereotyping in this film, um, starting from the beginning with the, um, let's just say, the accents and mannerisms and even some of the sort of alien facial features given to the Trade Federation. <laughs> Hmm. Um, suggesting of a sort of an oriental uh, origin, which is worrying in itself. And then you get this sort of Afro-Caribbean sort of uh, type of stereotyping for Jar Jar and the Gungans and other things. It, that, I'm, I'm just going to put that there because I think I feel that that's a, a, a problem um, that's not just of this film, but it's just it's there hmm. to, to, to discuss. But Jar Jar Binks in this film is a real problem tonally because everything we've talked about is this this idea and we've talked about some heady themes already this idea of the decline of a, a religious order um you know the inevitability of a prophecy uh, the balance of the force all this stuff and then you get this rubbery duck-faced pillock running around <laughs> the film just you know um you know me so rubbish it's just it just it just there you go irritates the hell out of me and it's uh, you know, defend Jar Jar to me, and I will try and counter. Okay, I will say. Okay, this this first statement I'm going to say is going to be off the record. Okay, just for all of us knowing, <laughs> I will say every time I watch the uh, Phantom Menace, I like the whole film more, and I like Jar Jar less. So I probably like Jar Jar less than you guys do, <laughs> but I will try. I will try my best. Okay. Now the obvious thing with Jar Jar is, let's say. Okay, let's say the positives first, more so than anything. Jar Jar, regardless of the character, I think we can concede that the attempt, okay, not necessarily execution, but the attempt of Jar Jar is unlike really anything that's been seen before. He was, to my knowledge, the first or one of the very first fully CG characters to be mixed in with other non-CG people, essentially. And <clears throat> he was meant to be one of these big, huge icons and things, and it was a massive thing to do. And then, you know, then we push the rest under the carpet. With that in itself, the attempt, which is what I think the problem is with George Lucas's vision for this film, is a lot of the, the CG obsession with it and things. With Jar Jar, what they were trying to do is, in George Lucas's mind, they had all this, you know, taxation stuff, the Trade Federation stuff, a lot of political jargon, which took me until probably only about five or six years ago to fully understand. <laughs> um, but... You know, when I was a kid, I didn't really absorb any of that taxation stuff. It kind of went over my head. But I do remember Jar Jar a lot. And for the most part, like, let's not forget that Phantom Menace is, it's meant to be a rekindling of love for the OG trilogy people, which it probably failed on more so. Or it's meant to really be a new beginning for people who hadn't seen it. It's basically the millennials first Star Wars film in, in layman's terms. 
And Boa was trying to do is appeal to everyone all at once. But instead of appealing to most people subtly, it was trying to appeal to everyone really strong. So it was like, okay, we'll go hard on the taxation stuff. That's for the adults. We'll go hard on this. It's for the teenagers. We'll go hard on Jar Jar's comedic, in air quotes, comedic effects to the kids. And I think the thing is with this film is I think the places where I would argue it falls down the worst is probably because we're not the target audience, which sounds like a cop-out answer, but most kids between the ages of seven and say probably 12, 13, either like Jar Jar or don't really mind Jar Jar. And he brings a balance. He brings humor to the film. He did quite well with merchandising and things. And I seem to call I, I, was you about, I swear to God, I thought you were going to say balance of the force then. <laughs> no, definitely not. No, but he, he brings this, he tries to bring this comedic effect to certain parts of the film, which are just kind of spacey talk, which for us nerds is great for the kids who they're trying to appeal to in a lot of ways. It was trying to almost be this, Oh, look, jingle keys. Look, look, hello, quick. Oh, and he's gone. Now you can not pay attention for another five minutes. I, I feel like that was the attempt. And although he's a bumbling mess and he's a pain in the ass in a lot of the film, I feel like what it tried to do was what open up Star Wars to every demographic forcibly at once. That's what I feel. Here's the thing about this, right? Again, it, you, you say about Attack of the Clones, it has the high highs and the low lows. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with the tone in this film. And Jar Jar is, is a real... Um, symptom of that mm-hmm. that there are scenes in this film that even at, at my age I find incredibly dull. Some of the Senate's, you know, this whole thing about the Chancellor, this vote of no confidence around trade agreements and this plotting machinations and all this Machiavellian stuff that's going on in the background. You know, it, it that in itself is actually quite interesting. You go, oh, that's how because you can look back for as a, you know I, at this point, weirdly, I was doing A level history when this film was released. So I'm looking back and going, yeah, this is, you know, how these dictators get into power and hold on to it and all this other stuff. And you can clearly see that there's some good thoughts in there. It's not hugely well conveyed, but they have this tone. And then they're like, you're right. They go, oh, we haven't brought anything for the kids. Uh, bring out the rubbery-faced idiot. <laughs> bring out the clowns. And the problem yeah. is it goes from, like, one to the other shockingly fast um, throughout the film. Even to the extent of like you know when he the Gungans as a race, the, the whole thing is sort of like you know you in great doodoo and you're like no no <laughs> what is like, this dialogue is dreadful, um, but more than anything one of the worst things in this film to me is this thing that he is shown to be this comedic character, um, you know he's there to be silly or whatever, and then you you have this moment at the end the battle the end battle in this film. It's the moment when they're trying to, you know, they are defending Naboo. It's an invasion force. It's the most important thing. You know, they've got to hold this thing back until whatever happens, happens. And then they put Jar Jar in the middle of it. And even as a sort of like this, it's just like, it just sort of, you know, it goes from being like, yes, this is an important film. And it carries some weight and some adventure and some fun to being sort of like, "Uh oh, kids. Tom and Jerry time. He's going to drop some blue glowy balls, and it's, but it's going to work out fine. It's awful. It's just such a tonal jarring, excuse the pun, but it's a jar jarring <laughs> shift in tone <laughs> that you suddenly go, sorry, what, what was I watching before? What's the point of this battle? Because I'm sort of like, I mean, if anything, the robots, the, dro- the robot droid um, army, are bad enough in themselves like they're a little bit silly but they're like they're like an element of silly that you could probably get away with because there's always been that 
comedic, you know, line through the droid, you know, um, sections in throughout all the Star Wars films. Mm-hmm. But he sort of just steps over it and then just doo doo all over it, and it's just sort of every time that you think they're going to go and think, you know, yet yeah, they're going to try for something in this, it's going to be hard, you know, not hard hitting. That's ridiculous, but it's going to have some theme and some weight. Like they just literally just seem to throw him in there, and it's yeah. It's I, no points. Did anyone say to to uh, George, "Stop it"? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would say that my, the biggest argument I say for this film is that the film can unfortunately it's it's one of those irrefutable points. Jar Jar is the worst thing about this entire film, and I feel like if he wasn't on it, the majority of people who hate it wouldn't hate him hate the film anywhere near as much. And the problem is that's even worse is that the only thing he does in the entire film that's even remotely helpful is he takes Qui-Gon to the Gungan City, which unfortunately, shoot myself in the foot here, own goal, he could just know about. And then Jar Jar's entire existence in the film, with the only yeah. thing he does is take him to the Gungan City. But I will say, though, at least, at least in, in is consistent in, um, in this film and the other films and the extended content, which I'm not going to delve into because it's not fair, but like it, everyone unanimously in-universe hates Jar Jar. I think Padme doesn't really mind him, but she kind of like half owes him one but everyone who interacts with him does know he is a bumbling idiot and really hates him like the way Qui-Gon interacts with him when they're on Tatooine he is just constantly being like oh for god's sake can you yeah, so leave what, me alone so why is he there because that's he owed a, him a life debt that's what he, no, he saved his life here you go I get that he's a guide so that the moment you know because obviously when they go to the Gungan city and he says like you know he owes me a life debt because he's going to be exiled or executed or whatever so hmm. fair play that's fine and then they sort of come to him as a guide or whatever. But then they go to a completely different planet. <laughs> Not even a wet planet, a desert planet. <laughs> so why is he there? What? Yeah, I, I, you know, he might owe him a life debt. That life debt should be him staying on the ship out the way. Like, he serves no purpose. And even when the comedy sort of, like, when, again, they try to do the comedy bits, um, each time he does it, it's almost like to interrupt... Um, like a, a point being made, you know, there's, there's, they're having a discussion around the table later on when they are on Tatooine between sort of uh, Anakin and Anakin's mother and, and, and Padme. When you find it later, it's, it's obviously Padme, and then he just keeps picking his food up with his tongue, mm. and it's sort of like it's a, you know, you're supposed to go, ha, that's funny. It's like it's not, it's not funny. It's sort of distracting from the scene. It's you know, it's all this shows me is George Lucas clearly thinks this is funny, isn't funny, like. Mm-hmm. I, I'd um, say, I would say my final point with Jar Jar is basically just I, I feel like he was trying he was trying to be this oh look it's just that silly funny clown character huh? that, it's that rascal but then it's actually that he's an unbearable dick that no one likes at all and his yeah. whole involvement is just a burden to anyone he gets stuck to yeah. <laughs> which isn't yeah. the intention it's meant to be this cool fun because comedy only really works when someone's being annoying if you kind of think either they're a heart of gold and they're kind of just a bit of a rascal they have some sort of deep life story which makes them likable or they are just a likable, fun person. But Jar Jar doesn't hit on any of those levels. So I'm going to have to say on this point, I will concede the Jar Jar point because it is unfortunately the biggest hurdle for the Phantom Menace, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it is. It's, it's hard to defend him. Being I was wondering <laughs> yeah. how much you would dig yourself into the hole there. You kept digging and digging and digging. <laughs> My opening statement was that this film is actually a fairly good film without Jar Jar. And I can't make that point without accepting the fact that Jar Jar's a dick. <laughs> that, unfortunately. Would, very would, fair of you. 
Yeah, and I would definitely agree that if you remove Jabba Jar from this film, it 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 increases. It will definitely improve this film because then you have to do certain things without him, which makes it a little bit more entertaining, or there's, there's, it's more challenging to do things. Um, but let's let's talk about the other, the other issue you mentioned in this as well. The other thing that sort of um, is is a, is a, a, a problem for this film is um, Jake Lloyd <laughs> as Anakin. Um, and I, but before we get into his acting, because that's not his own fault, I, I don't blame him for his acting because he's a child actor and he is reliant very heavily on a director who clearly, you know, is just going do it faster, more intense, do this, wee, you know, it's sort of <laughs> George is just a child in the in a candy shop as well. The problem I have with with Anakin in this film is more again going back to the storytelling and the sort of the universe that that George Lucas wants to create and. Regardless of anything else that happens outside this film, we've always been told that um, the Force, if you've known the Force, it, you know, it's what binds us. It flows through you. It's this magical sort of thing that, that is, it, you know, we can sort of tap into it in some way. And anybody can be a Jedi and, you know, all that kind of thing. All of a sudden, this film says, no, 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 it's a bit of a boys club. And you have to have a metachlorian count to, to be able to do this. And this film introduces not just a prophecy, but almost like a savior type. By determining that Jake Lloyd's Anakin Skywalker has a midichlorian count off the off the record, you know, this is off the charts, you know, even higher than than Master Yoda, it stated at one point. And you go, okay, so we now know that the Force, although it was a magical fantasy thing before, has now got some basis in you know, not so much science, but at least in science fiction, in that there is something in your blood that allows you to do all these bits and pieces. So you nod your head and you go, well, that's stupid, but okay, I'm, I'm willing to accept that into some capacity, followed straight away by the fact that, the, that Jake Lloyd's uh, Anakin Skywalker is an immaculate conception. Yeah. And you go, so is it science or is it magic? <laughs> what? I, 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 you've, you've literally shoehorned in some stupid <laughs> reasoning for being able for the Jedi to be able to manipulate and utilise the Force, but now you're talking about immaculate conception. Nope, sorry, that, that's unforgivable. Okay, so with um, I'm trying not to delve into the. Uh, we'll, we'll keep it obviously just in this film. Otherwise, we'll go down a billion rabbit holes to try and fix plot <laughs> holes after the fact, which is much easier done. So in in the film, the thing is, what George Lucas was trying to convey was I kind of touched on it earlier was the fact that you know you hear about the perfect Jedi in the original trilogy. You hear the idealistic Jedi. You got Luke with stars in his eyes and mm-hmm. talking to Yoda, who's one of the greatest Jedi ever, and Obi Wan, who is probably one of the greatest jedi ever as well and you've got these two sort of pillars of good and then you've got them compared to obviously uh, vader and palp so it's very easy to have that sort of good bad billion whatever with the prequels it is trying to show that the jedi lost their way and the midichlorian part although maybe wasn't executed as well as it could have been it was trying to convey that someone like Qui-Gon, who is very much speaking about the living force, he uses that term a lot, and he's one of the only Jedi who speaks about the living force. And he talks about the force in a slightly different way to the the way the majority of the other Jedi do. But then it shows that him, someone who doesn't, as you say, he's kind of like a, a renegade, he kind of goes against the grain quite a lot. Even him, who's an against-the-grain Jedi, is still using this take all the mysticism away, take all the religiosity and spirituality away, and you're just measuring stuff. And the problem is, as you say, it does it does unfortunately bring a host of 
it does it, it takes the mysticism away with that immaculate conception thing and putting it back in it is a bit of a, a jarring thing in almost basically one scene i agree but i think what i think what lucas is trying to do is trying to convey the importance of this kid and he seems quite not that necessarily remarkable on the surface and i personally have never actually had that much of an issue with jake lloyd's acting and i'm not i promise you i'm not just saying that in this but it might have been potentially my age when i watched this and i just think yeah he's a kid he's basically a child that's kind of what he's meant to be this entire time with the immaculate conception thing when i first watched it i wasn't really sure if it was meant to kind of highlight oh he never had a father bad things cause him to be born or he never had a father he was created by the force and then unfortunately upon further research is he's (laughs) created by the force so i do see what you're saying but what I feel like the the goal was trying to be was that the force is still this mystical thing. It's just metachlorians are a way to to measure it to some degree. Um, I think they have said now, basically, that metachlorians don't... If you have a low metachlorian count, you can't not be a Jedi, although that's not stipulated in Phantom Menace very hmm. much. It is one of those things where you it's trying to show Jedi have lost their way by measuring something mystic while still believing in something which is off-the-wall let's not say crazy to offend people but you know in it sounds in star wars they're even like what he was born of the force how's that even possible so it's i think it's the the attempt at dissonance in the jedi's own belief system where it's like on the one hand you're being really spiritual and saying that a child can be born out of nothing while you're literally measuring his blood for this spiritual stuff and i think what he's trying to convey is this yeah this dissonance between the jedi's own beliefs which actually kind of contradict themselves I'm going to just hit on, on, on a phrase that you've now used several times, is that George Lucas was trying to convey. Hmm. And the fact of the matter is, like you say, he he is, and that's the point of this, that's why I'm sort of trying to get this film like that, put it in the docks, is the fact that right, he is trying to convey things, he just isn't doing it very well. I mean, the fact of the matter is, like you say, I, I understand, again, this whole thing about this is the, you know, to, the, uh, the decline of the, the Jedi, the arrogance of it all. But even like Anakin Skywalker's mum, like you know, she at no point like, he's basically Superman in, in this film. Like she's like, yes, I'm pregnant. Don't know what happened. No father. Crazy, eh? Crazy. Um, and like you know, she she just seems to have given like, yeah, but we're in slavery. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. But you've also acknowledged that your son can see things before they happen. And has super fast reflexes, and you know it. it the whole thing just feels really, really contrived. And I know you're, tr- you're saying you, he's trying to convey this, but then you can see other films. There are other films that have done this better. I mean, in fact, within this whole, within this year, in the same year, a new, another new trilogy um, that has real problems uh, s- s- seems to have the same thing, is The Matrix. Mm. This thing of The One, right? You have either Qui-Gon Jinn or you have Morpheus. Now, the thing is, they both have the same um, story in, in, to some, in some degree. It's a, an experienced veteran telling everybody else, going, no, 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 he's the one. He's somewhat special, whether it be Mitochlorians or whatever. It, you know, and eventually, the thing that's different is, in this film... He never proves that he's really the one. You know, that's fine because it's obviously the the, the development. Mm. Um, and in The Matrix, the whole point of that first film to set him up as the one, whether it be for decline or escalation, you know, it happens. There's that moment when they save um, 
they they save Morpheus and all this other stuff. But in this film, like they keep saying to you, he is he's the one. He's he's super special. He's super special. Prove it. He just keeps having accidents, and then well. he has a po- he has a pod race. And yeah, but again, you're going to tell me tr- that's Lucas trying to convey. Yeah, but it's not conveyed in that way. Not necessarily. I was going to say with the pod race, it does specifically say no humans have won pod racing. No, no humans have won a pod racing championship. So him, uh, the thing is, let's go into the pod racing thing to a degree because we're kind of bouncing mm-hmm. off the, the Jake Lloyd stuff. So the pod racing for me, that is a new generation's Death Star run. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. and. and f- to be honest, I'd say, apart from the Darth Maul fight at the end, I think the pod writing is probably the main highlight. And I think the pacing of this film, although certain aspects are quite uh, up and down, let's say, turbulent, I think the pod racing gives a really... It's, it's what people want, in a sense. It's the it's the Star Wars Star Wars. It's, mm-hmm. it's You've got the visual effects that really complement everything, and you feel like you're there. You've got the sound design that's incredible. You've got everything looking amazing. And you've got this kid, which is the same as Luke, flying something that is... You know, at the start of the race is basically falling apart and stuff, and everyone's telling him he can't do it, and everyone's saying, "Why are you doing this? You're never going to be able to do it." And everyone's going, "You know, humans can't win the pod racing, blah blah blah." And then there's this Dick Sabolba who's you know petro- uh, doing bad things as well, and he beats against all odds. He does the thing that everyone loved so much in A New Hope, that but because the kid, I think Luke is pretty annoying to be blunt. I actually think Luke is an annoying, whiny little <laughs> bitch, and I think yeah. Anakin is too. So I think that. If it's a Skywalker Luke, trait. Well, yeah, exactly. But if you saw Luke as a 10-year-old, I'm pretty certain he'd act the same as Anakin did when he was 10 in a lot of ways. And it, I think it's trying to show Luke in A New Hope is quite annoying. Empire Strikes Back, he's better, but really, I didn't really start liking Luke properly to Return of the Jedi. Well, with Anakin, that's, that's almost 10 years before you meet Luke. And he's been a slave as well, not just a young kid working with his aunt and uncle. He's been in actual slavery having to with no father figure and i think that with his the pod racing really cements in that little guy underdog challenge thing it's against all odds and that's the part of star wars that people cling to and one of the things people love so much with the original trilogy and i think that his acting in the pod racing part as well as the thrill of the pod racing how long it is it's not too long it got has the right amount of cutaways you see jabba the hut there for a little bit which is a nice little nod i feel like the pod racing bit in itself combined with Jake Lloyd works very well for what he's intending, and I don't think there's a trying about it in the pod racing. I think there's a succeeding. No, I I I agree with you in the sense that the pod race comes at the right time to give the film a boost. It's it's actually part of the pacing. I think is actually quite good. I think the whole pod race is is really good fun. I agree. Mm. I won't. I will not dispute that because I think it. And I think you're right. It comes in at that sort of. Um, <clears throat> this is the dogfight. That you get in all the other films, like yeah, you can't really do it in space so much. So you're going to do it on this. I really like it. I admit, I, I've got this, this, and to say that the the Darth Maul fight is the two sort of real highlights of this film. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing I say again is because you know this whole thing about the 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 they, they do try and say, oh no, no humans ever done this and da da da. Yeah, they build it up, and he does he does do it, but he doesn't do it using like the force <laughs> do you know what i mean like what i'm looking for is if you're going to tell me that this kid's now sort of got his metachlorian rates off the cloud i don't know what that means <laughs> it's nonsense <laughs> can't show me something don't tell me don't tell me this crap and then go he's special he's special he's got metachlorians off the chart oh wonderful what does that mean it means so, he can use the force. All right, show me, show him using the force. 
it by accident. Broom Boy in the later films utilizes the force in a more sensible way than Jake Lloyd or Anakin does in this film. He makes the broom come to him so he can sweep up faster. Brilliant. <laughs> but there's a whole bit in this film where part of the machine, part of one of his engines comes off and he has to reattach it. And that's quite a cool, tense moment. It's actually, I think it's. The, the CG in this in this whole pod race is excellent mm-hmm. uh, and, and is, is dated incredibly well. Um, but he, he basically sort of like, he's able to use it to catch it and pull it in. What I would like to see is just a bit of a nod, as you sort of said about the, you know, the, the Jabba appearing, would be that thing of like, if he dropped it, but just was able to catch it, and you're like, well, actually, did he use the force to catch that? Or is it, you know, did he, you know was that an, an innate ability? His fruit reflexes. Show me his ability to do something. And he's a great pilot. Wonderful. I'm pretty sure Han Solo could have won that pod race as well. Like it's, it's, there's nothing, although you're saying it's, it's supposed to show him as exceptional and it does as a racer. At no point does it show me him as exceptional as a force user, which is what Qui-Gon keeps banging on about. So it sounds like the major issue you have with this film all is all around the storytelling. Now, is this a problem where as a Star Wars fan, the defense, you are looking at this as a setup for the following films. You're not looking on its own. And the prosecution, you're looking at this on its own and saying, where the hell are the results from this film? No, no, I, I would always go and say, I, I could sit, as I said before, I could sit and watch, I wouldn't want to, you know, it was painful <laughs> for to watch for this, but um, I could sit and watch this and go, that's a film. It has a middle and beginning end, you know. It has two running stories that are both resolved to at least some degree by the end. You know, uh, the Naboo trade conflict is sorted. There's a, there's, you know, to, to, what, there's about a 60% satisfying battle at the end. And by the end of it, um, Anakin becomes uh, an apprentice. You know, the, the, the results are there. I'm sad. That's not the problem. It's the, it's the ways and means that everything that was already spoken about and set up and discussed in the original trilogy, in this film, like everything you're coming into with expectation. Is just all over the place. Like the storytelling is dreadful. I mean, the, the other thing that you say, you say about the nod of of of, of um, uh, Jabba the Hutt, mm. right? That's a nod. That's an Easter egg. That's wonderful. I've got no problem with that. In fact, I quite like that because it tells you something more about the 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 Huts. You know, their life expectancy, how they were gangsters and ruled the planet. Awesome. I'm quite happy with that. Why then? Like you say, they then f- force in. You know, with a blade, with like a sledgehammer of trying to force, you know, a round thing through a square hole or even other around R two D two and bloody C three PO into this film, and you're just like, doesn't need it. Like, uh, and this, I disagree with you there. No, uh, I, I know what you're going to say. Let me, I'll let me finish the point. Sorry, thank you. I know what you're going to say because they are meant to be the sort of of the original. They're supposed to be the point of view characters following that the the you know the um, Kurosawa sort of tradition, but it's but it makes no sense because you sort of go, this is an original trilogy. This is 30 years. It's starting sort of 30 years before and you go, great. Why are they there? Like, you know, this whole thing, it, it, it just makes this whole thing becomes a series of coincidences and just shoehorning things in. And I just find that, you know, it's mistake after mistake after mistake. You've already discussed Jar Jar. We've discussed the fact that like the imbalance between, the pod race is good. Great, like the two things we both agreed are great. The pod race and the and the the Darth Maul fight are great. Mm. But then there's all this political stuff in the background. And you're saying about the audience this is for. I was 18 at the time of this, and I didn't get what the hell was going on with the Trade Federation. Like, yeah, 
It's, it's, and then George Lucas has actually come out since and said, this wasn't originally for the fans. This is a kid's film. No, it's bloody not. This is closer to Yes Minister than it is to a bloody kid's film. <laughs> well, it's just say, the fact that like, it's not a successful... It choose, choose a bloody direction and stick to it. I feel like... I mean, I think Lucas had uh, an amount of pressure on... I, I, I know I've made this point. I'm just going to echo this point and then go on to the other things you said. But I just think there is... My argument in this whole thing is you could never make a Phantom Menace is going to make everyone happy. And this is evidenced by the sequel trilogy. Every single time the sequel trilogy comes out, everyone goes, oh, The Force Awakens is too similar to the other ones. Oh, here's Less Jedi. It's a really different take on a lot of the things. Ah, it's too different. Okay, here's Rise of Skywalker that's just fan service. Ah, it's nothing. And it's just, no, not to be attacking you, Scott, obviously, because we're friends, but like, basically, no one's ever bloody happy. Now, I'm not saying this is the perfect film in any way, okay? I'm the first to put my hand up and say this is a flawed film. But the thing is, there are so many similarities with A New Hope that people generally just like to glaze over, right? The coincidences of Star Wars is the Force. I know it's a cop-out answer, but that is consistent through every Star Wars film. The fact that what? So there's a little farm boy on Tatooine who happens to be Darth Vader's son, well, and obviously Obi-Wan looks over him, but somehow R2-D2... The one droid who's got the plans for this kid's sister is actually the one that he manages to find only on the basis that a red one they chose started to fry and they managed to get R2-D2. Oh, so that's not a coincidence. What? And then they go to the uh, they go to a cantina. They happen to find Han Solo, probably the only vaguely honourable smuggler ever. And he's also one of the fastest and best pilots in the planet and the entire universe. Right. And he manages to find them. Do you know what I mean? It's, I'm not going to say I'm the whole gonna, story. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, no, no, no. I'm agree, I'm going to agree with you. I think you, you need to harken back to our, our previous, when we did the epic review. And I think <laughs> you'll find that my other point is, I also think that the original trilogy are overrated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for these, for the exact same reasons you're displaying, and that's the point, though. That whilst George Lucas gets the whole, it's it's fun, yeah. Mm. It's and it is fun, and you can look at it and go, it's fun. And the one thing I will say about the, the prequel trilogy over the sequel trilogy is, for all of its flaws, at least it has a singular vision. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not all good by by any stretch, but it is a singular vision. And the fact, but the fact of the matter is, you're saying that. No one could be happy. You're right, but you've already said something. You what you already conceded before when you talked about a lot of this was he tried to please too many people and satisfied no one, and that's the problem. Because if George Lucas had said, you know what, I really want to do a, a slightly more adult, darker take that's going to include um, this, you know, these political machinations in the background of politics and how this. Um, the Sith Lord manipulates an entire sort of galactic Senate into making him the all, you know, all ruling Chancellor in the background of this other thing of this boy being found. Uh, take out Jar Jar, take out all the other crap, just make it about that. Like, actually, if it had stuck to that and really brought in someone that could give it, you know, the script and overview of, uh, right, here's how you're going to do it. And actually, we are going to hold up these themes of the decline of the Jedi and actually have those discussions in place and have someone front up to them and say to them, like, you know, the decisions you are making are clearly flawed and this other stuff, but not someone external, a third party, and some of the storytelling Mm. technique. I would actually say, do you know what? The bare, bare bones, if you strip down the Phantom Menace to its bare, bare bones, there is a real, there's a germ of a really good idea in there. It's just unfortunate the presentation that ended up on screen is a mess. I would say that 
Star Wars, I, the storytelling I'd say is probably the, the weakest element of this film. But I would say that the thing is, is that visually it's still stunning. Like I know Jar Jar can be a bit jarring and stuff for the yeah, CG but, character, but, but, but visually like, it's stunning. Right, right, right. So what, if this is the storytelling, the storytelling is its weakest part. It's a film. Storytelling is yeah, what it's supposed to do. True. That's like buying How- a book and going, it's not a book. The binding's fine and the front cover's nice, but the story's crap, but it's still a good cover. It, well, it's, that's let- what it's supposed to do. I said the storytelling was the weakest point. I didn't say the storytelling was bad. I'm saying <laughs> the strongest points, which is the point I'm trying to make because I'm being the optimist here, the, visually, it is stunning. Okay, the films, for its time, it's great, and now it's just better when they remastered it and stuff. Musically, I would argue it's almost almost better than some of the original Star Wars films because I would argue Jewel of Fates, which is obviously at the end, is the best Star Wars theme tune apart from... I mean, some argue the Imperial March. I would just accept that, but I politely disagree and think Jewel of Fate is the best Star Wars tune ever. I think it's phenomenal. That mixed with the fact that you've got the pod racing part, which is very synonymous to the Death Star run. You've got this kid who's going, who's a nobody on this nobody planet that no one cares about, that's against all odds has come out on top and is managing to fight its way through. You've got these Jedi who are meant to be this peak of, uh, of brilliance, and they are just you know, kind of dicks in some degrees, kind of know-alls, and also, you know, you've got Qui-Gon who's awesome and he gets wrecked at the end anyway. I feel like the plot is actually good. I feel like the problem is the plot gets sidetracked. I feel like you've almost got it where instead of two hours and 15 minutes of consistently good plot, I feel like what you've got is good plot throughout the majority, but every now and then you get this minute or so where the plot pauses because of Jar Jar normally, and then it continues on again. Continues on again, and I feel that in my argument, the parts that do that do not make the whole film bad. They just—it's uh, almost like a false start in certain ways. You know, it kind of—it's like a hurdle. It's like a speed bump. I'd say almost the parts of Jar Jar, and I feel like the really negative parts of this film are actually more so just speed bumps in the way of a slow acceleration of a of a film and a plot. Because I know I've said a bit before, but it, it does have a beginning, middle, and end, as you said, Scott. And it is also the first of a trilogy. You know, it, it's it's very hard comparing them in, in sort of in those ways. But a lot of the things with A New Hope, it does have. I mean, you said about R2 and C-3PO. I actually love R2 being in this film. Like, I think it's brilliant. It was just him with about, I think it was five other random droids that just all look fairly the same. And for some reason, him, just he just randomly managed to get through it. Well, that's the story of Star Wars. Against all odds, people managed to succeed. And that's what R2-D2 did. That's what Anakin Skywalker did. And that's what the original trilogy did. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one last point, actually, I'm very going to say. And you say, it when we said about, you know, I said it, the grand appeal, it's trying to appeal to everyone at once, and it doesn't appeal to anyone 100%. In that same point, though, here's the thing. In 2012, it was re-released as a 3D, okay? It made $102 million from people going to the cinema in 2012, by the way. This was 13 years after it was released. VHS tapes were almost outdated. DVDs were everywhere and not too expensive. And people still spent hundreds of millions of dollars going to watch a film that everyone had basically already seen. Well, if it was that bad, how did it make so much money and why did so many people want to go see it? And that answer to that, I'm sure you'll give me one. My answer to that is that the majority of the people who viscerally hated it are the people who already had too much expectation, 
mainly from, in my opinion, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, because you're comparing a complete, brilliant, basically genre-starting, uh, whole wave-starting trilogy and sci-fi to one chapter in a new birth of the century. You know, it's going... Century, the millennium. You know, 99 moved to 2000. I think the social views on things, the already baggage, 16 years of hype, it all of it culminates together to make people have expectations for a film that, yeah, it didn't quite reach, but I feel like the f- the points at the bottom aren't as... The, the points at the top, rather, more than make up for the points at the bottom. I will concede two things from what you just said. The score in this film is ace. Mm-hmm. John Williams is, a, is an absolute master, and Jewel of the Face is stunning. It's a great piece of music. Um, and so, you know, anything John Williams does is, is pretty much outstanding. You know, um, the dude sort of basically scored my life. You know, so, <laughs> you know whether whether it be whether it be you know um, listening to sort of the Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Superman, whatever, or actually just Christmas time, listening to Home Alone soundtrack. Like you know, the dude sort of is is always perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will say is about your point, though, about this whole thing that the the, the bumps in the road um, in a, an accelerating film. And I'll, I'll come back to my thing of the bare bones plot. And you're right, the bare bones plot of this film is really interesting. This idea of um, the Jedi in decline, this, this you know, and, and this arrogance and stuff. And you, you, the th- I'll, I'll keep, keep coming back to things like trying to convey. <laughs> but the point of a whole of a film, especially a setup film, and I agree that it came with the weight of expectation. But again, like this was George Lucas working with uh, at the time sort of 20th Century Fox, and um, you know he had he like let's let's face it as well. Like if you're going to look in the background, who's this guy's friends? You got he's got Steven Spielberg. The dude's got his friends with Martin Scorsese. Like you know he's got these people in the background that could have had a look over the script and gone, you may want to do this, you may want to do that. Like you're telling me Steven Spielberg never looked at this script. Um, but the fact is, like, he comes in, and it's again, it's this thing of like you're saying, trying to convey. Like he has an idea, and then he just goes mad. Like, you know, it's it's so tonally all over the place. Like, yes, we're going to have this Senate and the the Machiavellian sort of uh, ch- things of of Chancellor Palpatine, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. That's you know, oh, it's interesting. Now we're going to throw in this kid. And again, like I say I'm not going to bash Jake Lloyd's acting. It's not great, but I don't blame him. He is a kid. And I think he was given some really poor direction. Um, but it's this shift in tone of like, who is this for? And again, I'm not coming in saying with expectation of, of expected Empire Strikes Back, but I am expecting something that's going to leave me on a cliffhanger at the end that's make, make me want to go, yeah, I want to see the next one. And it doesn't. Because by the end of this film, all I've gone is, yeah, it, it, the fight was all right and the pod race was all right. I don't care about anybody in this film. And that's one of the other problems I'd have with this one. Like I said, the characterization is it, it feels, it looks stunning. You're right. I will admit that the visuals of this film, and again, I think Lucas, like, so there are some directors I think that get slightly overrated, but they are visual masters. But I'm fine. I can look at a picture. I read comics. I love a great artist. You know, I can watch, look at that all the time. Looks amazing. That's fantastic. But, you know, it's still like you can you could you, you can make a model out of pile of poo. Still going to smell like poo. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it might look great. Still crap. 
<laughs> and that's the problem with this. Like, it looks great, and there are scenes in this that look fantastic. I rewatched, I was, and I sort of studied, um, not studied indeed, but I was watching the fight between um, Darth Maul uh, and and uh, Qui Gon and and Obi Wan, and I was thinking the choreography is is really good, and Ray Parks is is ace. And I think one of the things that this this film highlights more than anything is the the thing they have with. Uh, Darth Maul is he's on screen for around seven minutes, under and six. he is un- okay. So he, he under six minutes. Sorry, <laughs> that's fine because it proves my point further. He quickly became one of like he became almost like the one of the faces of the the prequel trilogy. You know, his face was all over packaging. His he, he appears. I think, if I'm right, like you know, when they did sort of the the characters that appeared, like he appears as the one of those sort of iconic characters. Now his his character design is great. Again, going to the visuals, I really like him. I think Ray Park brings a real air of sort of strength and mystery to him. But it's because he's only there for six minutes. Because you go, oh, what what the hell? This Sith apprentice, he's awesome. This is he's badass. Like this is the problem. Like this film, at no point do I ever think that the Jedi are anything to write home about. Yes, I know your point about them. Um, you know, uh, decline, although incline. But if I wanted to see Jedi's in a retirement home, I'd go to see them in a retirement home. But the fact that, like, a young Sith apprentice kicks the crap out of two, a Jedi master and his Padawan who's about to take the trials, just go, you just go, you're, just, you're all a bit soft, really, aren't you? You know, granted, I know Obi Wan beats him at the end and it's a cool little shot, but it just tells me that actually the Sith are cooler. Maybe that's sort of the nineties emo fashion. So that's all, I don't I don't get anything from this. I don't really want to see anybody else's journey after this. And mm-hmm. again, going back to sort of this other thing about the, this, the th- one of the things I hate with prequels. I, I hate it more than it's one of my bugbears. So I will say, you might like R two and, and C three PO appearing in this. Is this inane need of people to shoehorn in an explanation for bloody everything in a prequel? Do you remember this? Do you remember that? Do you remember this? I mean, Solo, to be fair, Solo is one of the worst um, uh, culprits for it. Like, even bloody gives him his name and then his gun and then his, <laughs> and then he meets Chewie and then he gets the ship. It's like it's like a checklist. This isn't that bad. But having them in there, when you could quite simply just have two other droids or two other characters, not even have characters there, the whole fact was like, we discussed this idea of like, did he make C-3PO or not? And you say, you know, there's other material that says, no, no, he just put it, put him together. All right. Why is it that Darth Vader has anything? Because that's who it is. That's something we're talking about as Anakin. It's still Darth Vader in 30 years. Why has he got anything to do with C-3PO? It just makes this massive galactic, to me, it makes this massive galactic story, this saga, so small. Of uh, course, they're going to keep coming across the same characters, even bloody droids. It's ridiculous. Well, I was going to say one of the things with uh, with Anakin making C three PO. I think the point of that is that he's such an innocent young boy. It's trying to convey, and Darth Vader is such this soulless machine. Essentially, it's the irony of one of the first things you see him doing is basically creating life, and the ultimate. So why not create? But why not? So why not create something else? Because why does it have to be C three PO? Well, here's a better question. Why is it that everyone I talk to who grew up with Star Wars says one of their favourite things was having action figures and every single character has a name? That's why. It's because people don't like seeing characters in the background that are just, oh, uncredited pilot number one. People like to be able to know, oh, God, the Cantina Band. Oh, the Cantina Band. They've got a whole backstory. Oh, my God, this Jedi that was on screen for one second. I can get an action figure of him. That's definitely a Star Wars fan thing, because I'll be honest with you, I like Star Wars. Don't care. 
Yeah, but that's <laughs> but, that's you, and that's but, fair enough. But this but is what I'm saying is you have to understand. Not, why not give it? Why not give these people then these fans that want this this level of law and um, you know complexity and sort of depth to their characters? Give them a new character. In fact, do you know what? Then have it. Then that there is a story of the the droid that see that the uh, Anakin built and left behind on. Um, Tatooine, yeah, half built. Give mm. him his own story. He goes off. He's actually abandoned, and <clears throat> Anakin's mum uh, f- can't afford to use him, so he's sold. He's finished, and he ends up being used in some other way to sort of, I don't know, for the Empire. There you go. That's a new action figure for for <laughs> Lucasfilm to sell. Well, yeah, but I mean. I'm not going to necessarily go on that point because, not, not to be rude, but I think that's a little bit contrived. I think they are trying to push me off contrived. the main path. Contrived? C-3PO is contrived? Nah, but- C-3PO's <laughs> in it. It's great. You're trying to introduce... The, you have to understand the point of this film primarily was to introduce a new generation to Star Wars. And two of the most recognisable faces in Star Wars, excluding Vader, is probably R2 and C-3PO. And the point... And it's trying to show, like, it's like, oh, why did they bring C-3PO in? Well, why would you... Why would you just have another random droid in? There's been complaints about other films where it's like, why did they use a whole new character for that when this person would have fitted in but really nicely? This is nicely. a 30-year time gap. I don't, have the, I don't, I don't have the same th- technology I did when I was eight. Well, it depends on what the technology would be, I suppose. But it's, it, it's just, it seems, the, the other thing is... They're also as well, very poor as well. So it's like he's creating yeah. this thing. They can't so, afford a brand new droid thing. So this thing, you know, I know there's this idea of when the Repu- when the Empire takes over, sort of, it's that thing of like the Middle Ages that technology grinds to a halt a little bit and there's this left development. Everything's slightly dirtier in the original trilogy because of that. So technology development probably slowed. But I still can't buy the fact. So, and this is the problem I have with a lot of this stuff. You know, it's funny enough, I had it when I was, we talked about Blade Runner on another podcast I did, and the problem I have with that as well um, is this whole thing of, of manufacturing in movies. Like, this, you, like these droids, C-3PO is a droid, R2-D2 is a droid, uh, you know, any of these droids, if they're not made for order. They're a line. These must be made in vast quantities, right? They appear yeah. everywhere. So again, so if, the, if if why is C three PO special other from the other than for the fact he appears in the trilogy, in the original trilogy? If that's the case, again, you're just telling me that this one droid that was made on a production line is incredibly special. All he does is irritate people. It, it just again makes the world for this, this galaxy feel incredibly small because it's the same four people that keep coming up. I think that's kind of the point. Obviously, it's the the Skywalker saga essentially is meant to be that but I will say instead of getting stuck on this uh, one point because I think we both said what we want to say about R2 and C-3PO should we f- we're getting cut nearly out, past the hour mark should we talk yeah. about the Darth Maul fight as a kind of finale sort of thing well, yes let's finish on that yeah um, so I'd say I'll, I'll make my point with the Darth Maul fight and it's bouncing off what you said about you know Darth Maul his screen time in this film is less than six minutes there is to my knowledge I may be wrong there's basically no other character in almost any film franchise or otherwise that can be on screen apart from maybe horror films one could argue that could be on screen for such a small amount of time but be such an impact and the thing is that yes part of the films or part of phantom menace may not be ideal but i stand by that the darth maul fight is one of the best moments in all of star wars and also as much as i love the um, uh, the fights in empire and return of the jedi the fight scenes in them do not maybe maybe in return of the jedi a bit but they do not shadow the prequel fights like the fights in the prequels let's i think the attack of the clones would make an argument out of but let's just say okay phantom menace 
The choreography, as you said, Ray Parks, you said, and everything that happened with Jewel of Fates and everything is executed, in my opinion, perfectly. It links all everything together because you've got Darth Maul, this, you know, the Phantom Menace, who is this guy? He looks very evil. He clearly is. He's got a double-bladed lightsaber. That's really badass. You've got one of the coolest fight scenes ever with some of the best Star Wars music ever. You've got this intertwined with a strong female character of Padme going around, you know, being awesome, basically. And then you've got Anakin, who, yeah, he can be a bit annoying, but him showing that he can do the pod racing pays off later because it not only shows that his uh, instinct in the force and that he's, oh, he's just managing to survive all these things. No, he's so good with his intuitions. He's so good with being connected to the universe, which is kind of what the force is about. He then flies that ship. He, you know, in air quotes, he messes up a little bit when he's flying the ship, but he manages to, using his intellect, his intuition, and by the help of R2-D2, which is arguably one of the most important characters in all of Star Wars, those two people together, just because R2-D2 is so brilliant and because he's with, so clever with the Force, he manages to blow up the Trade Federation ship and therefore in itself winning the war on Naboo. That, mixed with the Darth Maul fight, which is one of the most accomplished fights in Star Wars history, if not one of the most, in my opinion, one of the coolest fights in probably cinema, not top, but in there somewhere, it just all culminates together where... These little gripes of the Phantom Menace, this little, uh, Jar Jar's a bit annoying, isn't he? Oh, they go on about Trade Federation stuff quite a lot, don't they? Oh, Jake Lloyd is an actor, he's a bit annoying. Why well, is C-3PO in it? None of that compares to the feeling you get when those doors open, Jewel of Fate starts playing, and Darth Maul ignites one side of his lightsaber and then the other, and then you've got Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan going at it. And he, and the thing is, that they, I think they did such a good job of that fight because everyone knows Obi-Wan survives, but no one knows what happened to Qui-Gon. And that, when he dies, and you just, every part of that, when Darth Maul's there and you've got Obi-Wan or Qui-Gon sat in the, the ray shield areas waiting for him, Darth Maul's pacing like a caged lion, and Qui-Gon's just there meditating and casual. All of it is, is almost unflawed. I almost can't fault from Darth Maul igniting his lightsaber to the end of the film. I, I personally can't really think of a flaw, and I think that is my big closing point is that the issues that are beforehand are much more minor and that the grandiose ending of Phantom Menace makes up for it being actually a really fun film. Let me just say, I'm I'm never ever going to dispute the Darth Maul fight because it's probably one of my, it is one of my favourite things in the Star Wars franchise. Mm -hmm. And I think it's up there in the top three fights um, of the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. The only one that carries more emotional weight and everything is probably Obi Wan versus Anakin in, in um, Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. But you, what I would say is, I would go, I would go the opposite and say that that is a highlight. Everything else around it, I don't care. I Padme, you know, again, um, um, Christ, I can't remember, um, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman, sorry, yeah, again, she's she's relatively strong in this. <laughs> Okay, I think I think this whole thing of having the sort of the decoys and that sort of thing again, a good idea that actually has some basis in in reality. Again, the nugget of a good idea, but it never plays out into this sort of thing of, of her being this sort of like this sacrificial queen. Because by the end of the film, I just don't care, and that's the problem. You're telling me that by the end of the film makes up for the rest of it, but it can't make up for the rest of it if I don't care. <laughs> I'm so worn out by everything else at this point. By the time you get to the end, what are you right when those doors open? And he ignites the lightsaber. That fight, I'm all in. And then it flicks back to the fight on Naboo, and you've got sort of like Jar Jar fighting on top of a tank, and it's but that is accidentally doing his stupid stuff against the droid army. 
And then you have Padme and her sort of guys sort of invade the palace. And it's sort of, at one point, it's like bloody Batman 66 when they're, they're going up the side of a building. Um, that, that, I'm just she's like, we're going to have to take the long way around. It, it's, to me, all of that is groan-inducing. And again, this whole thing of, of of Anakin in the spaceship with R2, and again, like you say, R2 being the most important character, that, that sort of thing bothers me because I, I am a detail person when it comes to this, and I will nitpick, you're right, but I shouldn't have to nitpick and go, what? What? That's Darth Vader, yet R2 never comes up again. All right, I'm not going to worry about it. Um, but it takes him several times. He almost kills people with that first, you know, when he's, Dicking around with that spaceship, and then he goes up and he takes over, and it's all done through autopilot. It takes him to the, the whatever is the mothership through autopilot, and again, yes, he takes over and he uses his, his intuition. But again, this comes to the problem with with that with um, George Lucas. The most important thing he should be telling you at this point is, and he should be showing you this is how important. Jake Lloyd is because you're right. He's the one that brings this this battle. Sorry, Jake, Anakin Skywalker. He brings this thing to to a, to a close. But the best thing, the most dramatic thing, is almost a side story where you go, "Now get back to that battle. Get back to that fight." Because that 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 duel of the fates fight. That's way more interesting, and than anything else that's going on in the film. So I, I agree with you with regards to the Darth Maul fight. I think it's awesome. I think that the the work they put into it and the way it's choreographed and shot is absolutely excellent. Everything else around it is fluff, and I absolutely. And I, I, by the end of the film, I don't care. I'm sorry, but that's the problem with this film. Is <laughs> I, I get to the end of the film, I enjoy that moment, and it's about what four minutes if you put it all together for that fight. But I, you said about the, the speed bumps. I'm feeling so seasick from being jostled up and down, from the tonal shifts, from the trying to convey things. That by the time I get to the end, I've just lost interest. And that's the, that's the reason I would say is the biggest problem is that, you know, there are other films that did this. And I think you, you say about this run of birth of trilogy, yes, it carried more weight. And I would compare it to the other film, The Matrix obviously came out this year. That did not carry the weight of expectation that say this guy, I totally agree. But it also, and also it, it was carrying a different kind of tone and this other thing. But the, the, I would say the, the, the difference being between that is that, again, that linear need to tell a story. And I know it's a, it's a Star Wars trope of having three different battles going on at different times. You know, that's the sort of the idea. Um, it happens in, in um, was it in Return of the Jedi? And you know, there's three levels of fights. Fine. But it doesn't have to happen because it becomes distracting from the fact that you go, which one's important again? Which one am I supposed to care about? Um, it needs to be, if this was going to start and reignite something, George Lucas just needed to be sharper more focused and linear. Unfortunately, what he delivered was an, a bloated two and, two and fifth, what, two hours 15, two hours 16 minute film mm. that all of a sudden, not only did it disappoint both sides because it didn't choose a side, what it did was, instead of igniting excitement for me with regards to the rest of the trilogy, it just gave me a shrug, where to the extent of I didn't go to see, um, what's it, Attack of the Clones in the cinemas. For ages, I waited because like, eh, I'm really not that bothered. It's sort of, I'm, I'm you know, even then. Um, so yeah, that's my final statement. Really, I just, I just, it has moments that stand up, but you know, so does the Godfather Three. Doesn't mean it's a good film. 
<laughs> I will say I, I want to clarify so this is I, I this will be the end of my point. I was just going to say with Jar Jar, I'm saying it more for fans who are listening to this. Okay, I am aware of the Darth Binker storyline rumor, but I specifically am not using that for two reasons. One, I know how much it upsets Scott when people talk about it, and two, <laughs> it's not. Just in case he was listening, go. Why well, didn't like this big Star Wars fan talk about the reasons Jar Jar might have been in? It was because of him being a dark sider. Blah blah blah. I feel like although I'm partial to those rumors, and I would be inclined to think they have quite a bit of truth to them. I just want to clarify for the audience. I didn't want to bring that up because me and Scott would probably just argue about that the entire time. <laughs> and so I, that, that's not even a point to make against this thing. That I just want to clarify to anyone listening, just in case they wonder why I bring that up. I have. I did see those in some of my research, and do you know what? It it's. It's interesting, um, and I like sort of like you know, retrospective fa- fan theories. Um, it's not what George was thinking. <laughs> it's not. It's not in his head. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I mean, it's one of those weird things where I guess we, we'll never know. Uh, there's there's evidence for or against it, but I specifically didn't bring it up because I just think there's not enough to really make a good case and point on it. So I just want to say I did. I thought of that, but I specifically left that out. So that's fair yeah. enough. Okay, well, I think that's a good place. You've both had your final statements. Mm-hmm. And I think it's time for me to take a moment and consider my verdict. Coming up, the judge returns with the verdict. I'm I'm trial. Now, you were both very civil with your arguments, and I thank you for that. I almost forgot I was the judge there, and I was quite enjoying listening. Mm-hmm. So... There's quite a few arguments there, and you've both conceded some points. So you agree that the plot is generally, the basis of it, are quite good. The music, the visual effects, they're quite good. You both agree Jar Jar needs a slap around the face. <laughs> and more. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. <laughs> and more. Fair enough. And then we have other issues. You spoke about Qui-Gon. He's very strong, possibly a bully. Talking very much about taxation. And the boring side of the Star Wars universe, you could possibly say. And this all, I think, leads to the main issue. The story that leads through the whole thing. Is it good enough? Is it strong enough? Now, I've heard both of your arguments. I enjoyed both of them. But I think on this occasion, I think I'll have to let the defendant go with a warning. Oh, Any more yes. of this nonsense? And we will come and get him. But today, (laughs) you are free to go. Thank you, sir. My name's Scott Weatherly, and I'm the host of 20th Century Geek the podcast that looks at all aspects of geek and pop culture from the 20th century. Whether by myself or with an amazing guest, 20th Century Geek delivers full movie series retrospectives, classic comic reviews and discussions, interviews with those that created and contributed to 20th century pop culture, and everything else in between. 20th Century Geek is your one-stop shop for retro geek talk. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all other podcast catchers. Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. 
I speak to a wide variety of guests, including CEOs of businesses, psychologists, authors, musicians, travellers, people suffering with physical and mental illnesses, and everyone in between. Where we speak about a large variety of topics, including music and movies and pop culture, but also some more controversial topics, including drug reform, political correctness, and many more. No subject is off limits. You can find us on all the usual podcast places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube. And you can follow us on all the usual social media places. And to be clear, I don't expect everyone listening to enjoy every episode of my show. What I do think is that due to the wide variety of guests and topics, that there'll be at least one episode that each person listening will enjoy. So if you still appreciate the art of conversation and want to hear honest conversations with interesting people, then be sure to check out Genuine Chit Chat in all the usual places. He's going to go back out there and he's going to commit this same crime twice more. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, yeah, for Attack of the Clones. Is the next one. <laughs> That's although, quite the accusation. He's a offender. Um, although I do, I do want to say, okay, <laughs> on, on recording a comics on trial, I desperately want to do comics on trial, but I want to be the prosecutor for Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> that sounds like a weird thing. Me, I'm not saying that I like the prequels or the sequels more than the others. They're both brilliant and flawed at the same time. But I just, I want to come on comics and trial at some point and argue with someone why Rise of Skywalker was the worst Star Wars film. But I just want to clarify from the Star Wars guy, I don't want 100 percent of the time be defending yeah. Star Wars because this was a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did it well, and Thank you me. somehow managed to convince me, even though I'm not sure you're <laughs> you were fully into it. But you did a good job. You served your client well. Congratulations. Thank you. And I will say, I do genuinely watch Phantom Menace for enjoyment of my own free will. And I actually did about a month ago, (laughs) just for fun. So I actually do, to my heart of hearts, actually do really, really like Phantom Menace. I think it is a really fun film. I just think Jar Jar is unbearable. But bearable, (laughs) I say unbearable, bearable enough for me to enjoy the rest of the film. So that was my main point. Jar Jar is the main reason I don't like it, and the rest of it's a lot of fun. So I stick to that. Yeah, you've got to be careful what you're saying now, just in case he appeals. <laughs> yeah, so I'm already working on the paperwork now. <laughs> yeah. So we're still on there. I'm going to take it to the Jedi Council. They'll know best. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, was, it was lovely uh, debating with you, Scott. I was pretty scared about this before we started, but it was a lot of fun. No, it's good. I, I always enjoy it, and I, I know you're. Passion and knowledge is almost second to none. So I, I was really looking forward to this as well. So it's been yeah. really good fun. I'd be shaking your hands if we weren't doing this over, yes, yeah. <laughs> over online. I'll send you a, like a, a digital high five. There you go. Excellent. Thank you, Snow. <laughs> Appreciate that. And you too, Judge McJokes, Judge Face. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the um, the wonderful arguments and the wonderful conversation and the wonderful excuse for me to sit and, and listen to a couple of nerds. It's always fun. Thank you, sir. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of Comics on Trial. Do not forget to vote on the Twitter poll on Comics in Motion P. Let us know if you agree with the defense or the prosecution. Please remember, I am looking, and if you're nasty to me, I will judge you myself. (laughs) Please email us at comicsinmotionpodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions for future shows or topics that we can debate. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss out on any of the wonderful shows that we have on the Comics in Motion Network. If you like what you're here, do please leave a review. We really, really appreciate it. And make sure you share it with all your friends and families and even your enemies if you feel they might like it. <laughs> so, Defence, who have you been today? 
This is Mike Burton, and I host Star Wars Comics in Canon, which is out every Saturday on Comics in Motion. And I have my other show, Genuine Chit Chat, where I speak with a different guest every episode. And if you subscribe, you'll hear me and Scott Weatherly in a few weeks' time chatting about sci-fi stuff and crossovers. So be sure to check that out. Thank you very much. And Prosecution, who have you been today? I've been Scott Weatherly. I uh, host 20th Century Geek Podcast and also co-host uh, another sci-fi movie review podcast, Stories Out of Time and Space. And uh, yeah, check us out on uh, Genuine Chit Chat. It's a fantastic chat that sort of, it was supposed to start about one thing and just went off onto a wonderful rambling uh, conversation. So, Brilliant. We love rambling conversations. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> And I have been your judge, Paul. You can catch me on Superheroes for Dummies on Monday on this very wonderful network. Make sure you do join us next time for another episode of Comics on Trial. Dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. Comics in Motion has an excellent offer exclusively for our listeners. TKO Comics is revolutionizing the comic industry. They have creator-owned series from heavy hitters like Garth Ennis, Jeff Lemire, Joshua Dessart, Roxanne Gay, and many more. If you go to tkopresents.com slash discount slash motion20 and use the code motion20 at checkout, you'll receive a 20% discount exclusively for Comics in Motion listeners. That's tkopresent.com slash discount slash motion20. And use the promo code MOTION20. Happy reading.